are featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Feed the Children, Give Kids the World, Lupus Research Alliance. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBGive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBGive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving, and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. Today is uh, a good day for me. I'm still on sabbatical. Maybe you didn't know I was on sabbatical. Maybe those listening didn't know that I was on sabbatical. Since uh, May 1, I've been on sabbatical. I'll be on sabbatical until August 31st. Is it 31 days? And I can't even remember. September 1st. (laughs) I'll be on sabbatical till then, but I've continued to do the podcast. And the reason for that is I can't get enough of the amazing guests that I've been able to bring together for you to hear on this show. And today is no exception to that. Today we have, in my opinion, one of the most thoughtful nonprofit leaders in the world, one of the most thoughtful people I have encountered in the nonprofit sector. And I've had the good fortune of collaborating with him many times over the last, I want to say, 17 years or so. And we've done some pretty amazing things together that have had some significant impact, I would say, on a nonprofit sector. I met him when he was a program officer at the Hewlett Foundation. And there he was working with organizations that were operating in what we call the nonprofit infrastructure. And he was quick to connect with those of us who were leading organizations like mine, others like the Center for Effective Philanthropy, GuideStar at the time probably board source and a host of others and make sure that the Hewlett foundation had us on their radar. And in many cases we received funding and Jacob was the program officer that his name is Jacob, Jacob Harold. I'm, I'm like killing the lead, right? Burying the lead. It's Jacob Harold that we're interviewing today. In case you're wondering. And Jacob did that for a number of years. And then he, surprised the world by leaving a great job in grant making and going over to the 
angels and leading an organization that we know as GuideStar or we knew as GuideStar. It's now GuideStar by Candid, I think is what it's called, GuideStar by Candid. And anyone who works in the nonprofit sector certainly knows what Candid is and what GuideStar was. It's the organization that aggregates all sorts of data about the various organizations that file 990s and some even that don't and provides a place where we can all go to get the information that we need. Well, Jacob headed that organization for a number of years and then he was the one of the two people who created Candid by merging GuideStar with what was then known as the Foundation Center. And it's so interesting that these two organizations were able to merge because I remember early days, Jacob, when Sarah Englehart, my good friend Sarah Englehart, was leading the Foundation Center. And Sarah was very concerned at the time about the rise of GuideStar. I'm just being honest. (laughs) And I'm talking a little out of school, but that's okay. And Bob Ottenhoff was driving forward and making sure that GuideStar had a place in the world. And here it is, you know, sometime, some years later, that these two organizations actually merged and became one organization when some people saw them as competitors in some ways. I didn't see them as competitors. I thought they were doing different things. But when the leader of one of them feels that she's being competed against by another organization, I guess that's competition. But Jacob led that organization through the the difficult work of merging and then became its executive vice president when the merger took place, saw the organization get through a couple of years and then launched out on his own. And he's written this great book called The Toolbox, which we'll talk about today. And you will be amazed if you haven't had a chance to get this book. You'll want to get it because in Jacob's mind, there are solutions, but there are also tools that we can use to better sharpen those solutions. So, Jacob, let me just stop talking about you. I could also say he's an activist. I saw a picture of him once. Um, Looked like he was about to protest an electric facility or something for an environmental thing. I'll let him talk to you about that. But he, he is an activist. You wouldn't know that because he's so strongly supportive of institutions. And sometimes we get a disconnect between activists and institutions. Mm-hmm. I'll let him talk to you about that. But Jacob, it's great to have you on the Heart of Giving podcast. I've been looking forward to this day. And here it is. So so welcome to the show. Um, thank you, Art. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And, and, you know, I think you're right. I think it is 17 years, maybe 16 since we first first met and first started to think about how we could bring different strategies together to do more good in the world. I mean, that to me actually is a case of where activism and institutions don't have to be in opposition, that like activism exists because we want a better world and institutions can be a vehicle for that. Sometimes they need a little shaking, but they also are the way that we make 
change endure over time. And the best way to do that, I think, is to work together. So I'm glad to be here. Well, you are the ultimate collaborator, and we'll talk about some of those collaborations you and I got involved in. But let's talk about Jacob Harold, the activist. Tell me about this photograph that I saw of you. I think it was at your 40th birthday. Somebody had this picture of you and I think a couple of other people in front of this chain link fence. Looked like you were trying Mm -hmm. to stop something from coming in there. Tell me about that. I said, that's not Jacob. That can't be Jacob. I don't know Jacob to be that kind of person. But it was you. Tell me about what was that? What was going on then? Yeah, that was was 2003 outside of a Dow chemical facility in Houston, Texas. And the reason I was there is they're a part of a, a large protest organized by Greenpeace um, about the chemical leak that had happened in 1984 in Bhopal, India. Mm, I remember that. Where depending on who you ask and how you think about it, between three and 20,000 people died because of corporate malfeasance. And, and the plant at the time was owned by Union Carbide, which was bought by Dow. And Dow hadn't cleaned up the water. And so what my colleagues at Greenpeace had done, had, had, they'd just gone to India and they pumped out some of the, the poisonous water that was still there decades later and put it in a barrel. And we were just returning the barrel to the people responsible for it. Fascinating. Yeah. So that was my one time ever going to jail. I, I did spend a, a night in the Harris County Jail. And I haven't done anything like that in a while, but I, I do see it as one of many ways we can try and build a better world. You know, sometimes it's about putting on a suit and talking in front of a conference like you and I have done together. And sometimes it's about being in a boardroom and sometimes it's about being in a community garden. And every once in a while, I think the right thing to do is, you know, even to put your body on the line yeah. um, and that humanity has this, this toolbox that we can draw from and we've got to figure out the right time to use the right, the right tool. Well, we've done some things. We've done things like creating charting impact. Mm-hmm. Most people won't even remember charting impact. Tell us about charting impact. Yeah. So I, I remember when I was at the Hewlett Foundation and this, this moment when multiple organizations were realizing that we needed a new way to help nonprofits articulate the good they were trying to do in the world, some kind of new framework, something that went beyond just financial statements or just a mission statement or just an individual story, but some kind of logic about a goal and a strategy and what you're trying to accomplish. And I remember, you know, that you had basically this idea and Bob at GuideStar had basically this idea. Diana Aviv at Independent Sector had basically this idea, kind of all at the same time. And we ended up all coming together to create this basic framework of five questions every nonprofit should answer. And, and that framework has really endured as the, what is now the, the gold level questions on GuideStar by Candid. And that's been answered by tens of thousands of nonprofits. And it, it, it always struck me that when I would speak at a conference, almost invariably afterwards, someone would come up and say, hey, I'm at X nonprofit and we just went through the process of filling out our GuideStar profile. And man, it was hard harder than I thought because we weren't actually clear about exactly what we were trying to accomplish and how we were going to get there. But going through that process helped us get that clarity. And that framework had legitimacy because of the involvement of Wise Giving Alliance, because of the involvement of independent sector and all the organizations that we engaged with. And it may seem like a simple thing to pick five questions like that, but it, it I think, helped it have stability and kind of become an institution uh, in, in a way. 
I agree. We continue to use it and uh, encourage nonprofits that haven't thought through some of the fundamental directions for direction for their organization to use it. And it's a very powerful set of five questions. Of course, once you get into the five, you find out that there are more questions embedded in the five, but essentially there are five questions. And if anyone wants to see it, you can still find it on give.org. And uh, I'm, I'm certain you can find it on the candidates website as well. And if you haven't filled out your charting impact form, if you, and you're a nonprofit, I, I recommend you do that. Well, and then we did something also that I think was more shocking to the world, right? This was the work we did around the overhead myth. And that was a confluence of things going on at the time that really gave this a lot of lift. But it was also, I think, because of the organizations involved in <laughs> signing the overhead myth letter, right? You had GuideStar and Wise Giving Alliance and, of course, Charity Navigator, the leaders of those organizations all signing off on this letter, encouraging people to consider more than the finances of a charity before they make a giving decision. And I want to give you credit for that one. I mean, I think Ken and I, Ken Berger, who was the CEO of uh, Charity Navigator at the time, we both joined. But I feel like this was kind of your idea, and we sort of agreed that you know, we should be a part of this. So I want to give you credit for that. And I also want to give you credit for having this way about you. I want to just hold this up for a minute. Jacob has this way about him. And I I want to encourage others to figure out if they can adopt this way of being also, which is strong, collaborative, and also smart enough to help other people do things that maybe they might not have had the courage to do on their own. And I can certainly say that's true about the work we did around the overhead myth. I mean, we were part of our standards, Jacob, as you know, was to do these financial ratios and to tell people how much money spent on administration and fundraising. And to even give charities credit for meeting our standards if they if they did that well. But also we had these other standards that were equally important. And so when you came along and put it out there that this is something that we should do, it had impact on me. And I said, yeah, you know, we really ought to be a part of this. This is kind of a historic moment for organizations to begin standing up and helping donors appreciate that there's more involved in understanding a charity's worth than how much money they're spending on programs and administration. So uh, I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Well, 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 well thank you, Arden. You know, in, in the book, I, I define leadership as a, as an invitation to a shared story and you know, in a way, I guess that's what I was trying to do is say, you know, there's actually a shared story we have here. You know, come on, come, come and join me on it. But you made it possible because I knew that you, and I also knew this of Ken, recognized that there were nuances here that donors weren't getting. Yeah. And that you had that. If you were ever asked by a reporter, you would give them a nuanced answer. Yeah. I knew you were open to something that would move the field forward. And, you, you know, you immediately were 
helpful in figuring that out. And so it's a whole lot easier to invite someone to a shared story when you know that they're, you know, they're ready. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I feel like we had that, I had that advantage. Yeah. Well, there's a quick, quick shift, quick shift, and we'll come back to the book too. But one of the things in a book that sh- stood out to me is you refer to both your mother and your father. And obviously they had a big influence on you working in the social sector, if we want to call it that. But what was it about your mom and what was it about your father that sort of pushed you in this direction or maybe shoved you a little bit toward working in the social sector? Yeah. So, you know, I start the book out with a, with a story about my mom, which was, you know, when I was a, a young boy, two or three years old, like anyone that age, I would run along and I would trip and fall and scrape my knee on the sidewalk or the grass or dirt path or whatever, and start crying. And my mom would pick me up and give me a hug and make sure I wasn't bleeding too much. And then immediately she would kneel down with me at the spot where I fell and say, let's check to see if the ground is okay. And, you know, on the one hand, this was sort of a trick, you know, her trying to Brilliant. distract me, but it was really much deeper than that, that you know, for her, the whole world deserved compassion. And that, you know, part of our job as humans was to figure out how to in, how to grow our sphere of compassion. And that um, showed up for her um, you know, throughout her life, she worked at an AIDS hospice for many years um, and ran outreach at our uh, at Our Lady of Mercy Church, where we were parishioners. And you know, she, her work was not what I would necessarily call highly strategic. Um, it was just I'm going to throw compassion wherever I can find a place for it. Um, and, um, and and so I just took great um, inspiration from that way of being, use that word that she had. And then with my dad, it was similar in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, he would also say, hey, let's check to see if the ground is okay. But my dad had trained as a minister. He'd studied physics. He was interested in the world of ideas and interested in how those came together in, in human experience. And so I just learned so much from him about leadership, about science, um, about literature and ethics um, and so I really feel like he's the one who sort of taught me to love tools and my mom is the one who taught me to love, love. And, you know, he sort of put those together and there's the book and, but it, you know, it goes way before the book in that both were in the nonprofit sector. My dad ran Catholic social services for many years. He then helped to run something called the Daryl Hunt project that worked with, um, uh, men who were recently released from prison um, he did work uh, in a variety of different, he shared the local homelessness uh, commission. And, you know, so the nonprofit sector, the sort of day-to-day reality of nonprofit leaders and practitioners was my day-to-day reality growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what they would talk about at the dinner table. That's what their, their friends were often, you know, nonprofit leaders. Um, and so, you know, I saw the way that nonprofit leaders could make an impact. I also saw how they struggled. Um, but, you know, we all have to rebel against something. So I rebelled against their local focus mm-hmm. um, and, you know, worked on national and global issues, but, you know, in a way I stayed in the family business, you know, there's just no, there's no financial equity, but there's another kind of equity that you get with, uh, yeah. with you know, this line of work. Well, you have your own kids. How, what are you, what is your projection on it? Maybe it's early yet, but it is early. I mean, they're five and eight, but 
when they fall, we ask them to check and see if the <laughs> ground is okay. Um, and, you know, they're getting to an age where they're starting to think about the world. And at, at that age, kids think a lot about fairness, yeah. right? It's sort of like, did I get, you know, to play with that toy as long as the other kid? And so it's interesting to begin to see them applying that fairness from a kind of selfish situation to like, wait, is it fair that this person has more money than another person? Or is it fair that these people have access to nature and others don't? And so they're getting there, but they will be their own people. We'll see how they they take these lessons and turn them into something meaningful, I hope. Jacob, there are a lot of books that have been written in the world. And not as many, believe it or not, written about nonprofit infrastructure and the things that you care about. What was it that made you say, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to try to create some resources for nonprofit leaders to use? What's going on in a nonprofit sector that made you say, I think I need to do this? So a lot of it goes back to my time at the Hewlett Foundation when you know, I would sit in that beautiful building on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And, you know, some of the smartest people in the world would come and talk to me with their ideas about how to make the world better. And it was just such a privilege, just, you know, day after day to see people or to be talking to a colleague about, you know, someone they had just talked to who'd come in from India with this great idea about how to improve education or had just come in from China to talk about climate change. But I, I found myself over the course of the years I was at Hewlett struck by two things. It, one was, wow, there are a lot of really good ways of doing social change and using behavioral economics. There's smart storytelling. There's new kinds of mathematical modeling. There's design thinking. There's you know, leveraging markets. And I would hear all these different approaches. And I just thought, I'm so privileged here. I gotta, I've got to figure out how to share this. Got to figure out how to show that there's this abundance of ways of thinking out there that people can draw from when they're trying to make a better world. But then two, I also was struck by how, how many brilliant people became so obsessed with their one particular approach. And if all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. <laughs> and these brilliant folks who, who had a real insight would then allow that insight to prevent them from recognizing the other ways of thinking about the problem. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to share, I felt like I, an obligation to share what I'd learned so that people could have something to really draw from. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, the primary audience is nonprofit leaders, as you, as you say, but I think it, it, I do hope that it really reaches people who are working in community or who are working in government or who are working in business. And that increasingly the work of social good is spread across sectors and the lessons we've learned in the nonprofit sector we've got to figure out how to share with all the people who work in business, all the people who work in government and vice versa. We have a lot to learn from them as well. That's been one thing that's been tricky with this is figuring out, you know, I know how to reach nonprofit leaders. I know how to reach, you know, people who work in social business. It's harder to figure out how do you reach those people in government who are doing work that is so critical to the social good. But, and, you know, who I, I think we need to figure out how to support them as well as we can. And we, as a society, have not always done a good job of that. Well, in business, too. I mean, I think, well, you're, you're an MBA. You've got an MBA from Stanford University. So, you know, the business community, too. I mean, I think some of your tools can be applicable to them. I think of one of my family members. It happens to be my daughter. She's a, an executive at Goldman Sachs. 
running a social good program for Goldman Sachs, which is kind of mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain that many of these tools can be applied to the work she's doing, trying to elevate black women. Um, the program she leads is called One Million Black Women. And I'm certain that the tools in your toolkit can be used in that program to further the prospects for black women in this country who are trying to get ahead either in business, social world, or through employment. So, yeah, I think there are opportunities, but we got to figure out. I don't know. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but have you discovered that businesses tend to discount what nonprofit organizations do and learn and maybe they don't feel this is relevant. What's your thought about that? Maybe I'm being negative, but. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I think the business and, you know, the, and just as there has been a trend over the last two to three decades of, you know, many in the nonprofit sector looking to business for insights into management and leadership. And I, I think that's very healthy and productive. I think it's now business's turn to say, you know, what has the nonprofit sector learned about employee motivation? What has it learned about managing multiple bottom lines? What has it learned about shifting the nature of systems? We, we don't get quite the respect that we deserve, I think. And you know, I, I get that because you know, there are certainly examples of nonprofits that are not very effective, just as there are examples of businesses that aren't very effective. Right. And so you know, I think that is maybe getting a little bit better and that as more and more people in, in the business world are serving on boards or spending time at nonprofits or, you know, their business school classmates are in the nonprofit sector. They actually have that social connection that that learning across sectors is happening a little bit better, but I still think there's a lot more that we have to offer that we haven't figured out how to share. Yeah. Jacob in the toolbox strategies for crafting social impact, your book, you talk about the world as it is good, bad, fast. Tell our listeners what you see and what you're saying in that book about the world as it is. Yeah. That, you know, that's the, the first chapter after the, the introduction is called an age of flux. And, and those are the three sections, the good stuff that's happening, the bad stuff that's happening. And then the things that are just happening fast that in a way we can't even, you don't even know yet if they're good or not. And that this is the context that change is happening in. And, you know, I think it's really important that we recognize that there are a lot of things that have gotten better. And I think we, honor those who worked before us when we say on some metrics, life has gotten better. And, you know, you can see that across literacy and many health indicators, some human rights indicators. And that, you know, if we are only focusing on the bad, we're we're basically insulting our forebearers in a way, I think. But then we also have to fully acknowledge, you know, everything that is a mess in our world right now, whether it's the climate crisis whether it is the extraordinary inequities that we see across almost every metric in our society, in particular on the dimension of race, but also across within different countries, across countries, one's identity so often drives one's outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that is, you know, in my mind, a violation of the very idea that all human lives are equally valuable. We've got a lot of work to do there. And, and then you, know, you look at political polarization, you look at Wealth inequality, you know, th- th- there are just a lot of there are a lot of challenges that we face. And then the fast part is maybe the one that's most interesting but most uncertain. It's just as the world has become supercharged by technology, change happens faster, and we as humanity are not catching up to that change. Our institutions are not evolving as fast as the underlying trends. 
we're feeling that right now, I think, intensively around artificial intelligence. Mm. I think we may start to feel it more around biotechnology pretty soon, maybe quantum computing. There are some ways where it's actually really encouraging how fast things are changing, for example, around renewable energy. But in other ways, like when you think about how technology is distorting our politics, it's pretty terrifying. And so like we, we just need to, I think, shift some of our time horizons in terms of how quickly we respond to things. The challenge, though, is to do that in a way that still allows us to hold on to the long term and that we're not just putting out short term fires, but thinking about, you know, what do we want this earth to look like when our great grandkids are around? Yeah. And the fact that things are changing faster makes it harder to do that, but almost even more important. So that's just context. Yeah. You know, that, that chapter is just context for the work of, of, of social good in whatever sector. Yeah. But I do think it's important to just pause and kind of look around and say, you know, what, what do we see right now? Um, because that's going to matter for what we might want to change. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the context that you lay out in the book is vitally important because for a lot of people, we're living in it but don't take a minute to stop and identify it and name it, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's important to do that because otherwise you may not take the time to work toward addressing the challenge that you're working on using the information that you can learn from that. And I think that's critical. One of the things Jacob, I just did, I just joined the board of the Institute for the Future. Ah, uh-huh. And it's all about, right, this is all about what's happening 10 years from now and how do we figure out how to apply what may be happening 10 years from now? How does that affect the work we're doing today? And I see a lot of that in the book. I see you mentioning a VUCA world, you know, um, a volatile, uncertain, ambiguous and what is it? Volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. complex yeah. and ambiguous. Yeah. And the heart, I think, of our world today is how do we manage the VUCA? Right. I mean, mm -hmm. But many people don't take the time or don't have the luxury. Right. We don't have the luxury of spending time naming these challenges and understanding them in a way that we can apply real solutions. I think you and I have a luxury. We have a luxury to be able to sit back and think about these things. Average person wakes up in the morning trying to get to work, trying to get their kids ready. And they're picking them up after school. They're feeding them. And they're going back to bed and they're doing it again. Nobody has time to do what we have the luxury of doing, which gives us an additional responsibility, I guess, to bring this to the masses. And that's one of the reasons why I joined the board, because I think, like your toolkit, the toolkits of futurists are equally important for leaders to spend more time working with so that we can be better, especially in the nonprofit sector where no one works on anything past. How do we get our next grant? <laughs> and one thing that I love about Institute for the Future is that it has the confidence to say, you know, it actually is possible to talk coherently about the future to lay out different yeah. scenarios, but still the humility to say, we know, we can't predict the future. We don't know right. what's going to happen, but we, we still can talk about it and we still can try and do that in a rigorous way. And I, I think there's, there's so much value to that and that's going to become even more important. One other thing I'll just mention about VUCA is 
because it gets back to something we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the VUCA concept comes from the military. Yeah. And, you know, there's another, that's another realm of human society that I think we have so much to learn from. Um, and they have so much to learn from us. I mean, especially you think about, yeah. you know, how in Afghanistan, for example, the U.S. military found itself doing a lot of things that nonprofits typically do, helping to manage elections or education or food, food distribution. Um, and so, you know, I think there's an opportunity for mutual learning there. But when it comes to strategy, you know, we in the social sector, I think, um, you know, there's centuries of thought that's gone into, into military strategy. Well, let's talk about a few of the tools. If you had to, and I'm, I'm sure you haven't thought to weigh them in any particular way. But if we randomly pick two or three to discuss, just to tease the audience, to make them go out and get the book, which ones would you, would you raise to talk about right here? It probably actually would be the first two storytelling and mathematical modeling. I'll say what the others are, even if we we don't. Now storytelling you, I'm, I'm good with, when you talk about mathematical modeling, you scare me. (laughs) So let's, let's hear about it. <laughs> you know, sure. And, you know, I start that section with a, with a poem, which is actually about Nazi death camps. Oh. And the poem includes the line, history rounds off skeletons to zero. Mm. The one is as if it never existed. And, and basically the, the, the poet is, is commenting on the fact that, sort of the distance of history and the fog of war makes it really hard to get precise numbers about something mm-hmm. horrible like a Nazi death camp. Yeah. And to me, that then raises a question of, does that mean that the numbers are um, obscuring the human experience or are they really revealing it? And to me, I think that numbers reveal it and, and that when we count impact, when we count those that we're engaged with, we are giving dignity to those that we count. And so there's actually a moral force in my mind behind mathematical modeling that often gets lost. Got it. Got it. And that, you know, there are a lot of people in the social sector, I think kind of get nervous around the numbers and see it as a, um, a betrayal of the richness of human experience when I think it's the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sort of the first point in the chapter is this is not just about soulless numbers. This is actually about counting people or ecosystems or ideas or works of art. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, so what do you use? And that, that there are actually some pretty simple concepts for math that are really important to social good. Um, and that we can make very simple equations, just like adding up the impact of each site that a nonprofit works in mm-hmm. that begin to actually tell a story about the organization. And that equations themselves are stories and that the variables are just the characters. Mm-hmm. And that also the right use of math can actually allow us to take risks if we really start to play out, oh, this thing is much riskier. There's only a 10% chance it's going to succeed. But if it succeeds, it will have a 20 times the impact of the thing we know will work. And that then you do the math and you realize, oh, we should actually maybe take this risk. Um, or at least you have a different kind of conversation. And, and then, of course, you know, there are tools from um, statistics and data visualization that are important as well. And I, I talk through those. But it, it's as much as anything, I hope, kind of permission for people to use math as a way to understand their work without assuming they're going to get it exactly right. Um, and, you know, so much of it is kind of giving us giving us that permission to be imperfect, um, but to still try and be rigorous and clear. And, and math can help us do that. 
Well, that drives me to want to ask a question about ethics, too. But um, I just want to comment real quickly on the math thing. People ask me, well, what do you need to make a decision? I generally need to feel like 51% right. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. If I'm 51% right, I'm probably going to do it. Yeah. Unless, unless my gut says something else. Yeah, yeah. But if I feel like, yeah, there's a 51, 52% and the resources there, do it. We're going to do it. And I know a lot of people, no, 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 I got to have 90, I got to have 100%. Well, maybe depending on Mm -hmm. the issue, depending on, you know, the risk of catastrophe, you might want more surety. But I found if I'm 51, chances are it's going to be, if I keep doing the research, it's going to end up being 90. So let's stop with the research. Let's get, no. <laughs> but I don't know. I know a lot of people probably don't act that way, but that's probably experience and a whole lot of things working to give me that comfort. But I mean, and, but I think that's becoming even more true in a VUCA world. Yeah. Um, it's just getting harder and harder to have certainty. Yeah, that's right. But you know, we do also have to think through consequences Yeah, yeah, yeah. and sometimes we want to have more confidence, but in general, yeah, I, I I'm with you on that. As long as it's a process of learning. <laughs> yep. Yep. You know, and that, you know, when it turns out that 49% was right, that you fold that into, you know, what you do next. Well, let me ask you about the ethics question, Jacob. I know you talk about that in the book too. Why was that one of the underpinnings in the toolkit? I mean, because each of these tools, I should mention the other ones, um, mm-hmm. behavioral economics, design thinking, game theory, community organizing, complex systems, markets, and institutions, every one of those tools can be used for good or evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to think, you know, storytelling is inherently good, but I mean, every genocide started with a story. Mm-hmm. And so if we're not careful, we just using these tools, we, we can end up having really negative consequences. So it, what, what's important, I think, to recognize is that the tools are morally neutral. So therefore we have to bring in our own ethical systems, to make sure that mm-hmm. we use them well. And I mean, that has to be a priority. That has to be foundational. That, that, that chapter is before the tool chapters to, to talk through the very real ethical complexities of social change um, that you're kind of bound to run into when you're trying to make a better world and that you've got to confront those honestly. Yeah. I should add, though, that just because the tools are ethically neutral doesn't mean they're strategically neutral. And in mm. that, like, they can be used for good or evil, but they will tend to lead you in a certain direction. You know, if you are only using mathematical modeling, you will probably tend to do things that are more easily measurable. Um, And if you are only using storytelling, you may find yourself going very, very deep in individual narratives and not thinking as much about, for example, scale. Um, And so, you know, the the tools will will lead you down a path. Um, And let's just hope that along the way, you've got enough of a moral center that you can navigate that that path. Okay. Last question. You started out by saying that, you know, some people see the world as a nail and they have a hammer and they use it. So you've given us a number of tools to use. How do we pick among the, the various tools that you have here? Yeah. I'm scratching my neck because it's it's kind of a hard one, (laughs) but so here's how I think about it is that I think we all have an opportunity and maybe even an obligation to have basic familiarity with a range of tools, mm-hmm. basic understanding of the principles and, and, you know, how they, how they work. And then to a certain extent, 
we've got to experiment and we've got to trust ourselves as to which ones are most relevant for a given situation. But I also think that you know we can be a bit rational about this. If, for example, your social change intervention has to do with getting food to people who are, live in food deserts, then you better think about markets. I mean, it's pretty obvious that markets are going to be one of the lenses you're going to have to consider. So I think that people can pretty quickly figure out, uh, you know, looking at this problem, it's going to be it's going to be one of these three. Um, the other thing I should emphasize is that I certainly don't expect that anyone is using all nine tools for every problem. Um, I mean, right. when you're working in your garage, no one is simultaneously using all their tools. You're picking the right one for the right moment. And I think I, I have faith that people, when they're familiar with the basic insights of a given tool, can figure out when it's relevant to them. Okay, Jacob, we're at the end now, and I, I need to have you leave us with a word or two of inspiration about the sector, the world that we will one day leave to our children and grandchildren. How are you feeling about it? How are you feeling? Are you feeling optimistic, pessimistic? What what letter would you leave for those of, yeah. you know... So I'm feeling, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll answer that in a couple of different ways. One, our institutions are not changing fast enough to deal with our, the problems that we face. Our institutions are just clearly not ready. So we've got to figure out how to let go of some of our, uh, our ego and our fear. The merger to create Candid, a lot of it was getting over ego and fear. And we've got to figure out how to apply that to institutions across society. That, that's one. And we haven't done that yet. I think we can. We haven't done it yet. But one thing that gives me hope is just looking at the sheer scale of humanity's resources devoted to doing good. You know, in the United States, you know, we've got one and a half million nonprofits employing 13 million people overseeing a $3 trillion economy every year. It's, I mean, our society has figured out how to devote an immense amount of resources to making the world better. And that gives me a lot of hope. And that gives me a sense that like, if we've figured out how to build in that kind of apparatus for good over the course of the centuries, then we can figure out how to evolve our own institutions to, to face the problems that we're facing right now. That's a good one. Well, listen, the book is called The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact. The author is my guest and longtime friend, Jacob Harold the one and only. And if you haven't purchased the book, I highly recommend you get it. Highly recommend you get it. We're certainly going to be encouraging all of our students at Columbia University to get it. And we're getting it for all of our board members at the Wise Giving Alliance, of course. It is just full of insight and, as we say, tools that can be used to help us deal with some of the challenges that we face and some of the opportunities that we want to take advantage of in our organizations. So Jacob, I want to thank you for joining the show today and for, for writing the book and for all you've done, at least since the time I've known you. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more you're doing in the years ahead. Um, thank you, Art. That means a lot. It's been, it's been great talking to you today. Well, good. And if anyone is listening to this podcast for the first time, um, I hope you will subscribe. Uh, we produce this every week. 
And there's always going to be an interesting guest, although sometimes I go solo. Last week I went solo to talk about the affirmative action situation. So I commend uh, that to you. But uh, and if you if you want to also contribute to the podcast, that that's great, too. Um, you know, I have to do a little fundraising here. You can make a gift to the Wise Giving Alliance to support the podcast, and that would be uh, terrific also. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.